0: Welcome, a listener, to another episode of Spam, 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 Humbug. This is episode 134 of the podcast, and it will be the final episode that we do, not of the podcast, but in our little mini-series uh, where we have different members of the Ultimate Dragons offering thoughts on Ultima 9. Today, you get my thoughts. Longer episode this time around. I had a lot more to say, so I hope you'll enjoy hearing me out. I hope you will hear me out. Um, obviously... Those of you who know me in the community know that I am more of a fan of Ultima 9 than some are. Um, I actually do think it's, you know, a great, not perfect, but definitely a great game. Um, It is one of my favorite Ultimas, for sure. And I try and explain why over the course of the next eh, 40-ish minutes or so. Of course, as always, a reminder that we are now hosted on Anchor.fm. It's a newer podcast hosting platform, a little bit more social in its nature. Uh, if you're following us in the Anchor app, you can of course, like the podcast, like individual episodes, please do also consider sharing them with your social media circles. And you can also find us uh, either at anchor.fm slash ssshpodcast or at spamspamspamhumbug.com. Oh, and by the way, in the Anchor app, you can leave us voice messages, and I would encourage you to do so. If you feel so inclined, we can work that into an episode, no problem. And we'd love to be able to respond to something that our listeners have to say. For those of you who do the smart home thing, you can also find us on the Apple HomePod or on Google Home. Try saying, hey, voice assistant of your flavor. Play the podcast Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug, and you should get our latest episode. And of course, this episode of Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug, as all episodes is brought to you by our Patreon backers. Thank you to everyone who supports the podcast and the Codex by that means, and especially a hearty thank you to our co-producers, Seth, Golden Flame, Chris, Brickbat, Dominic, Violation, Cranberry, Christopher, Bruce, Darkwaith, Dragon, Helgraf, Gronk, Pascal, and Thorwan. And actually, that reminds me. I owe a note of thanks because... We have a new patron as of the very end of January. So a big thank you to Micah for becoming a patron of the podcast. Thank you for your support, Micah. Thank you, I hope, for listening and glad to have you aboard. All right, let's get into my thoughts on Ultima Nine. Before I talk about Ultima 9 directly, I need to set the stage a little bit. Ultima 9 came out, of course, in late 1999. I think my first forays into the game probably came early to mid 2000. Um, at the time, I didn't buy a lot of computer games myself. Ultima 9 was one of the very few, actually, that I did go out and buy a box copy of. At the time, a lot of my computer games came from my grandfather. He would play and pass a game, and then he would pass it along to us. Um, I mean... I've spoken about him on the podcast before, and I do credit him hugely, very significantly. Him and my grade 5 teacher are probably the two men I credit the most with stoking and fostering my interest in computers, in programming, and in video games. My grandpa's a consummate gamer. But Ultimate 9, I didn't want to wait for him to pass. I had been following stories about it in magazines. And I was looking forward to it. Of course, I'd enjoyed many of the Ultima games. Ultima 6 still being my favorite, uh, and then both at the time and today. And I just couldn't wait. So when Ultima 9 dropped, I picked it up a few months later. Actually, even maybe not that long later. I'm not sure. It would have been in early 2000, at any rate. Got you know around to playing it soon thereafter difficult when you're trying to balance your school career and I had started finding jobs actual jobs at that point in my life and uh, of course I was heavily involved in the scouting movement as well so didn't have a lot of time for gaming and then of course to further set the stage you have to understand that I'm not an only child I have four siblings and we had one count them one family computer until uh, about at some point we inherited my uncle Bob he had passed away around that time uh, we inherited his computer as well. And so we had with that, a second computer that was introduced. And that was actually kind of interesting because that second computer, even though it, so the main family computer at the time was a P3600 and it had a fairly basic video card. I want to say it was an S3 Trio, but don't quote me on that. But it seems to me that that's what it was. And then we got Uncle Bob's computer. Slower Pentium 3, uh, 450 MHz versus, like I say, the 600 on the main floor. I think it had the same amount of RAM, though. But the thing was, I was able to obtain secondhand hand uh, Riva TNT 2. And so that went into the 450 MHz tower, which meant that despite the slower processor, it did turn out to be the better gaming rig overall, at least for some of the 3D games that were coming along at the time, Ultima 9 being one of them. But... One, you know, <laughs> five kids in the family, one, and then, you know, two, although once the uh, second computer, once the once Uncle Bob's computer was a little bit more uh, tuned up, my early forays into hardware um, implementation, it became, you know, the gaming rig. And so effectively, you know, one gaming PC shared among... Five children, at least four. My brother would have been, what, maybe six, seven at the time, but still he was starting to get into playing educational games. There was one Sonic's schoolhouse that he was particularly fond of. Not a lot of time in the day to be sitting on my butt playing Ultima 9. If I got an hour in, I was lucky. And that, I think, helped shape some of my initial experience of Ultima 9, because granted, people did encounter bugs with the game. But in my experience, those bugs tend to only crop up after lengthier play sessions because my play session and a lot of those bugs sorry i should add this are tied to as we've now learned through things like the forgotten world project and their analysis of the game and the patches they released for it and some of the other tweaks that they've um, detailed and put out there a lot of the bugs with ultimate 9 seem to fall on the graphics and in particular with uh things like you know a somewhat memory leaky graphics caching system um the transparency effects in moonglow seemed to cause some issues, so a lot of it was tied to graphics. but a lot of the memory leak related issues, the graphics caching related issues only cropped up after a while. So sure, if you were playing the game for a couple of hours, you'd probably start to encounter issue issues, but me maybe getting an hour at most, I never saw a lot of those problems. And so while I do, respect that some people did encounter ultima 9 as fundamentally a buggy game i didn't find it particularly buggy in fact i found ultima 8 significantly more buggy and actually even had an easier time crashing ultima 7 a lot of the time so that's my perspective obviously it's not everyone's perspective but that is how i came to the game and it's you know sort of how i uh, how a lot of my opinions about the game initially were shaped initially And I hasten to say initially, because there was a time shortly after that, actually, you know, I had graduated high school, gotten into university, and really, it was only in like sort of high school that I encountered the Ultimate Dragons. And it was only really after I left high school and got into university and had more regular internet access that I encountered the Ultimate Dragons as, you know, I mean, I knew about them from like 1997 or whenever I registered onward, but I didn't really start encountering them online too much and getting into discussions with them until after 2000. And so, of course, I encountered people who hated the game. I encountered a lot of the criticisms of the game um, that, you know, you'll still find cited online. Hacky's Ultima page, Spoonie's review, whatever you want to, whatever your source is. And in some ways, I came to internalize that. And I certainly bought into, you know, the EA hatred and all of that. But then, of course, I was still playing Ultima 9 at home, and I was still enjoying the game every time I played it. And that kind of set up a cognitive dissonance for me. And eventually I kind of just, you know, dropped it. And it was like, no, like I enjoy playing Ultima 9. It's uh, it's a fun game that, uh, yeah, I, I found I was going back to as much as I was going back to Ultima 6. So while I did for a while buy into the hatred of the game, it was never really something that I could take ownership of. It was never really something that, you know, it didn't stop me from playing the game. And it didn't stop me from enjoying the game, and it doesn't now. I, frankly, enjoy Ultima 9 only slightly less than Ultima 6. If you ask me for my top three Ultimas, it'll be Ultima 6, and often Ultima 9 is in the top, you know, is in the second spot. Ultima 7 may be in fourth place. (laughs) When we talk about Ultima 9, It is easy to get lost in the weeds of, you know, oh it was buggy and oh it was rushed. And it did have its bugs, like I say. Was it rushed? Well, yes in the end, but granted a lot of that came about because the project moved by fits and starts. The project was restarted at least once, maybe twice, cancelled at least once, maybe twice, resurrected. For a while it was like the shining star of EA's coming lineup and then it wasn't, it kind of fell out of favor. Ultima Online, of course, pulled a lot of the team away. Most of the team never came back. They had to hire a new team, or a lot of a new team at any rate. Um, They had different producers coming through. The plot went through multiple iterations. The engine went through different iterations. And all of that stuff wastes time and it wastes money. And I think, you know, if there's a criticism that we can really make of EA, the criticism to make of EA regarding the development of Ultima 9 and the state of Ultima 9 at launch, isn't that EA forced Origin to rush the game out the door. It's that EA didn't put pressure on Origin earlier on. Didn't pull Origin into line and stop them from rewriting the game and, you know, like, didn't really put a halt on things. uh, On sort of all the different rabbit holes that Origin seemed to be going down. I think it kind of becomes abundantly clear that and, you know, you can see this in, like, um, Bill Randolph's post-mortem or the interview we did with him. And we've heard it from other sources as well that just the problem was there needed to be a stronger management vision guiding the development of the game, which there wasn't. There was a strong creative vision, but not particularly strong management vision guiding the creation of the game. And that ultimately wound up hindering it. And they needed more management oversight. They needed maybe even just a little bit more pressure on the time, you know, not necessarily in terms of timeline, but in terms of like, you know, um, just, yeah, the guidance from the publisher to you know, say, hey, like, you can't keep going back to the drawing board on this one again and again and again. Sooner or later, you have to pick one of the drawings you create and run with it. And that didn't happen. And that did hurt the development of Ultima 9, and that did hurt the final state of Ultima 9. If there's a version of Ultimate 9 that I wish we'd have gotten, I will say right now that I don't think it's the Bob White plot. I really wish that we could have seen the Ed Del Castillo plot. I think that would have been an absolutely amazing game to play. Because, of course, it brought in elements um, that, you know, at the time we were really only seeing in games like Tomb Raider. And actually, Tomb Raider might have come later, now that I think about it. Some of the stuff that was in Ed Del Castillo's vision for it. And I just, I like how he structured the plot. And I like how he tied up... um, a lot of the loose ends and also handled some of the new concepts that were being introduced with uh, with the plot of Ultima 9. But say levy Ed departed the project too soon um, and he kind of became a scapegoat for a lot of the criticisms that were starting to build up uh, for the game. But to his credit, Del Castillo did one very important thing. He batted away EA's marketing guys when they came to the door saying hey do you think you could incorporate some online play into Ultima 9 and between Bill Randolph's technical explanations of the difficulty of doing so and Ed Del Castillo in his capacity as producer at the time basically just saying no heck no we're not doing that um, that fortunately was not a burden that was placed on the Ultima 9 development team which means that you know that probably saved the game, and that's probably why we were actually able to get an Ultima 9 at all. It's important for me to communicate to you, the listener, that Ultima 9 was years ahead of its time. You know, like, I've got Felipe Pepe's The CRPG book in front of me, and, you know, looking back at, like games from the last few years prior to Ultima 9 coming out. I mean there's you know like Elder Scrolls Battle Spire was technically a 3D game that came out in 97, but first person 3D, so more like an Ultima Underworld, a very advanced Ultima Underworld. Westwood Studios had Lands of Lore 2. You know, you could point to something like Final Fantasy 7, but that's a very different kind of game than you know what we would got uh, what we got with uh, Ultima 9. Return to Crondor, but even then, that's rather different. It is a 3D game, but again, not really the same sort of uh, not the same sort of title. I don't believe that was open world, for example. Again, just kind of flipping through the book here, looking for other stuff. Right? Uh, those sort of 3D RPGs. I mean, you had a bit of 3D in Might and Magic 6, but Might and Magic is definitely not the same kind of game as Ultimate Nine, King's Quest: Mask of Eternity. Again. You know, it's an action RPG. You can play it in first-person or third-person mode. It's got the real-time combat. There's platforming. You can climb walls. Um, again, you know, a lot of those Tomb Raider-type elements in it. But I don't believe it's an open-world game, which is something that Ultima 9 had going for it. You know, and just looking looking, looking through afterwards, like, you know, may, maybe... Well, not even Omicron, because Omicron had a very different combat system. Um, gosh, you know, like, I can't really... I'm probably going to have to flip through this book all the way to like one of the gothic games to find another game that did most (laughs) of what Ultima 9 did. And that's, you know, a thing that I really want to underscore is the fact that Ultima 9 presented us with something very unique for its time, and even today, still kind of unique. It wasn't the first 3D RPG, it wasn't the first third person 3D RPG, but it took the third person 3d rpg further than many games that followed it even dreamed of doing you know if you think about ultima 9 right you have it is an open world game granted there are some there's some deliberate bottlenecking in the plot that keeps you from exploring certain parts of the world for about the first third of the story of the game but at some point that world does open up and again, those are those are physical barriers. Well, they're, they're barriers that are present in the game, but not in the sense of like those parts of the world are not there. They are there. You can see them and actually you can get to them. It is entirely possible, even without using cheats, to get outside of the areas that you're supposedly constrained to. Granted, you may break the plot by doing so, but it is still possible. The world is there. It's an open world. And more than that, um, you know, geniusly implemented because it is built in areas. You know, we've seen inside the game, we've seen the game assets again, thanks to projects like Forgotten World and Beautiful Britannia. And so we know that, you know, the, the the world is kind of divided into different chunks that are then all stitched together, but they're done so in such a seamless way. Even, you know, walking into a dungeon, it feels seamless, even though you're technically walking from one 3D asset to another. The variety in the dungeons is amazing the variety in biomes in britannia is similarly amazing like it's it's a beautiful and detailed and well-realized world we can criticize it maybe for being small engine limitations being what they are i mean i don't know if that's necessarily a fair criticism yes obviously the world is (laughs) the world that this first generation 3d rpg engine can convey to us is indeed smaller than the world that an nth generation rpg engine like say ultima sixes can convey right you know ultima six was developed at a time when 2d rpg engines were at a a state of significant maturity and so obviously yes the world in something like an ultima six is pretty darn huge because those engines are very mature ultima nine developed with you know a very when 3d engines were still in a relatively immature state to criticize it for not having as big of a game world yeah, I'm not sure that's entirely fair. And realistically, um, I would push back on that with, you know, the remark that at least there's some distance between Britain and pause again. I mean, if you actually, Ultima 7... Has the, they are literally right next door to each other in Ultima 7. And Exalt, if you play Ultima 7 with the Exalt engine, it makes this very, very plain. If you scale, you know, if you uh, dial up the resolution and let it actually like zoom you out in the world, you see how squished together a lot of things are in Ultima 7. The world in Ultima 7 feels big when you're playing at 320 by 200, but it gets very small rapidly once that resolution starts to climb. But beyond that, you know, it isn't just that... Ultima 9 allowed you to wander around in third-person 3D inside a large and richly detailed world. It's that the world was interactive. You could pick... That was a hallmark of the Ultimas, starting with Ultima 5 a little bit, and then, of course, Ultima 6 onward. It made sense to be able to pick up something that wasn't important to the plot just because it's something that you'd be able to pick up in real life, right? A plate on a table or a cup or something like that, right? You don't need to collect plates in Ultima 6 to or or mugs in Ultima 6 to pass the game there's no point to the fact that the plates and the mugs are movable objects but you could move a plate and a mug in real life if you happen to cross it so of course you can move them in Ultima 6 and the Ultima 9 team built that same sort of interactivity into the Ultima 9 engine and it's notable that that sort of thing kind of disappeared from 3D RPGs for Over a decade thereafter, right? If you think about games, you know, the RPGs that came, the 3D RPGs that came after Ultima 9, most of them feature static environments with baked light maps, which means that you don't have that kind of interactivity. Yes, there's plates and pots and all the rest of that to be seen, but you can't touch them. You can't interact with them. They are just scenery. Very few RPGs after Ultima 9 attempted to make the world even half even a quarter as manipulable as the world in ultima 9 is and even few rpgs today really bother with that and the ones that do i don't think do it to the degree that ultima 9 did ultima 9 was very much you know well if it's not tied down then yes you can manipulate it because you should of course be able to manipulate it so the world of ultima 9 and its realization and the level of interaction that they were able to build into it these were all incredible things these would still today be incredible things to see in a 3d rpg and the fact that we had that in 1999 mind-boggling years ahead of its time another thing that i think Ultima 9 does well is the general control mechanism of it um <clears throat> origin of course like this was still in the day when text input in games was something that was fairly you know routine and origin came up with i think actually a really quite genius control scheme which in one of my conversations with richard garriott he identified the purpose of it right because the idea was like nowadays everything is wasd that first person shooter control standard has become the de facto standard for pretty much any game not just first person shooters but with ultimate 9 the team made the decision to free up the letter keys you know they wanted they did not want the letter keys to be part of your main control scheme because of course with typed inputs and things like that they didn't want you inadvertently triggering something when you're just trying to move around so the game's controls don't use the letter keys but overall the game controls very very well it's easy to walk around in britannia the jumping system is probably one of the better ones i've seen in any 3d rpg um, especially because, you know, it gives you that very nice visual cue of the red cursor, yellow cursor, green cursor, whether you can make the jump or not. Um, and the actual jumping itself works quite, quite well. Uh, definitely the lessons of Ultima 8 were learned and addressed and then quite ably. The other thing, though, that I like about the uh, the controls in Ultima 9 is just that they, they're really what enable you to explore the game world to the fullest and honestly the way that i approach 3d i mean depending on the game right like obviously a lot of 3d games nowadays will just put up non-walkable barriers uh for areas that they don't want players to go and that's that right essentially relegating a lot of this 3d environment to being essentially just a pretty backdrop that you can't actually touch some games though um star wars the old republic for example really affords you a high degree of freedom to move around environments. And honestly, the way I play any game that gives me that kind of freedom stems from how I played Ultima 9, which is to say that I just tried to jump up everything, right? Every hillside, every mountain, every anything. If I could try and find a way up with jumping, I would do that. And I do that when I play, you know, The Old Republic. Uh, There was a time when, hell, I didn't even bother advancing my character because I was too busy hopping up mountainsides and then taking, you know, a series of screenshots and stitching them together in my panorama photo software. (laughs) Um, Mass Effect Andromeda, which I'm playing through now, again, similar approach, right? I'm always trying to like just work my way up the mountainsides because, hey, I have a jump. Uh, Why shouldn't I use that? And the combat in Ultima 9 actually works reasonably well. I mean, it's not my favorite combat engine. Uh, That is still, and probably will for the foreseeable future, be Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. That was amazing combat for, you know, the type of RPG that it was. But Ultima 9 has very serviceable combat. A criticism that is sometimes leveled at Ultima 9 is the fact that the combat system doesn't actually, like, there's not much there, there. But the problem with that is that it's not true. (laughs) there's actually an incredible amount of depth to the Ultima 9 combat system. There is, of course, uh, I mean, you can, much like, you know, it's possible to pass Ultima 6 without ever leveling up once. And for that matter, it's possible to pass Ultima 6 with, you know, maybe only a half a dozen creature kills in the entirety of the game. Especially if you skip the entirety of the pirate map plot, that cuts down on the body count. But with Ultima 9... It's entirely possible to pass the game just with you know the vanilla combat abilities that you start with, but all of the different weapon types, staffs, swords, etc., are trainable within Ultima 9, and as you train up in those um, skill trees, for lack of a better term, you unlock additional moves, which you know certain key, press, or mouse button combinations will execute, right? And actually, this is one of the only ways you can kill giant crabs, is to use the staff, and this is not a basic staff move, it's something that you have to train up and learn. But once you learn it, you can use the staff to flip the crab over, and then either with the staff or flip to a sword, hit the underbelly of the crab, and that's how you kill the giant crab. The problem was this was not well documented. I think it did come on one of the reference cards in the box, but the best documentation for it was in the third-party Prima Strategy Guide, which, of course, not everybody bought with their copy of Ultima 9. I certainly didn't. And so it kind of went unnoticed by a lot of players because, hey, who has time to actually RTFM? But it was there. There was a lot more depth to the combat system than I think many of us playing through the game for the first time realized. That's unfortunate, you know. Of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't address the story of Ultima And like I said a little bit earlier... (sighs) The final story of Ultima 9 is not my favorite iteration of the story. That would go to Ed Del Castillo's plot, which was detailed several years ago. You can find it at gallery.ultimacodex.com I prefer it to the Bob White plot, which of course we now have in full, also at gallery.ultimacodex.com. You can find a download of the entirety of the plot there. One thing that I was happy about when we got... Because remember when initially, after the release of Ultima 9, Bob White kind of released his summary of what his iteration, i.e. the first iteration of the plot of Ultima 9, was going to be. And for a lot of Ultima fans, that kind of became like the pseudo-canonical Ultima 9, or like, oh, well, this is the one we should have got. The problem was that Bob didn't include everything in his summary. And when finally Joe Garrity was able to uh, convince him to release the entirety of his plot treatment for the game, there was a lot of extra stuff in there. And there were a few things that turned out to be even in that original iteration of the game's story that made it into the final iteration of the game notably the duality the avatar guardian duality which was a point of controversy for a lot of people right a lot of fans were just like oh my gosh this is an absolutely terrible storytelling and if we'd had the bob white plot like none of we wouldn't have to be dealing with this right now well actually it turns out you would have had to have been dealing with this the raven romance subplot was also in there and of course the bob white plot also introduced the idea that uh, Hawkwind, A.K.A. the Time Lord, was the last surviving member of a race of supreme or like supremely powerful beings called the Ultima. Sort of a, a little bit of Deus Ex Machina there, I suppose. You know, it's a hell of a thing to introduce in the final, final, final episode of the game. Sort of like, uh, oh hey, the Emperor's actually alive. I mean, what? Sorry. Um, what am I talking about again? Right, Ultima. Nine. <laughs> So that was, you know, the Bob White plot. And I mean, there was a lot of cool stuff in the Bob White plot. You know, the the, the gathering armies and, you know, the the, the Civil War brewing in Bit- Britannia and and a lot of that stuff. Like, there was a lot of cool stuff in the Bob White plot, to be sure. Ed del Castillo's plot, which came along during Ed del Castillo's short tenure as producer, it was kind of the treatment that he prepared for Richard Garriott that I think actually ultimately landed him the job that he had for however many months he held it. It had a lot of the same elements. Uh, And I mean, I think he had actually like seen the Bob White plot and kind of written his own treatment based on it. So it had a lot of the same elements. But it was more streamlined. Um, It uh, was a little bit more action oriented. But that I think would have like worked overall, you know, because I mean when you're making a game about the final last desperate battle for Britannia, eh, maybe having a little bit more of an action focus isn't the worst thing. I'm just going to suggest that. But of course, uh Ed went on to become, I think, the scapegoat, unjustly, in my opinion, for uh for a lot of things. And it didn't help that, you know, um certain people, including um, you know, like I know there was a lot of bad blood between well, Ed and a lot of people at Origin. He ruffled a lot of feathers. And so there was a lot of disinformation that I think all of us in the fan base were fed about him by other people at Origin. That uh, you know, really kind of tarnished his name within the community. And again, I I don't think that was fair. I think that was really actually quite unjust uh on the part of everyone involved, and those of us who kind of bought into it, uh, lock stock and to smoking. Having spoken with Ed since then, you know, I mean, he's still very hurt by this entire experience. Uh that that is eminently clear. But, you know, his overarching goal was to just do right by Ultima because like us, he grew up with the series and he just he really wanted to do right by it. And you can see that in his plot treatment. Again, do check it out, gallery.ultimacodex.com It's... It would have been such an excellent game. And I, I really do regret that we didn't get to see that version of, of Ultima 9. That said, um, I'm not unhappy with the version we did get. Much like... Star Wars movies, Uh, (laughs) you know what, that's actually probably the single best example. I don't even want to try and iterate into any other examples. But, you know, much like trying to, Star Wars Episode IX, right? I mean, it, in many respects, was an absolutely amazing movie. And in many respects, it was an unsatisfying movie. And in many respects, it was an immensely satisfying movie. It's, I have such a grab bag of emotions about Star Wars Episode IX. Because... Star Wars was a part of my life from even earlier on than Ultima was, right? Like I can remember some of my earliest memories apart from realizing that I was not a cartoon character to my great sadness and dismay. Um, That's true story. That's my earliest memory. But some of my, some of my other earliest memories involve, you know, watching a taped cop, you know, taped off the TV copy of Empire Strikes back again and again and again until the tape I'm sure just died from sheer exhaustion. Star Wars was like just and and then Return of the Jedi and then finally A New Hope after that I watched them out of order but whatever Star Wars was you know a huge part of my childhood and my adulthood for that matter and so I mean coming out of the Rise of Skywalker man I had so many emotions right and the thing about the Rise of Skywalker is there there was no way in heck it was ever going to tie anything up or not anything but there's no way in heck it was going to tie everything up that's what I should have said and it didn't. It did not tie everything up. It was not perfectly satisfying. It was not... Um, it just... It. Yeah, there were parts that were like, okay, I really wish this could have been done better, or I really wish they would have addressed this, or I really wish they would not have addressed that, or whatever. But at the same time, I enjoyed the movie immensely. It was a hell of a show. There was a heck of a lot going on in it. It was hard to keep up with at times, but in that sort of really great like breakneck pace kind of way... It merits a bunch of rewatchings, and I'm sure that as I rewatch it, my enjoyment of it will grow. And what it did address and tie up, it handled immensely, immensely well, I thought. But I mean, you know, it's the last, it's the last Star, it's the last movie in the final trilogy of the Skywalker saga, which is basically what we have known Star Wars to be to date, apart from a couple spin-off movies. That's a huge weight. To be carrying, and it's an impossible task to pull off. There's never, there was never going to be a version of Star Wars Episode Nine that was perfectly satisfactory and answered all our questions and tied up all the loose ends and made everyone feel just amazing about this property that they know and love. And unfortunately, you know that's I think true of anything that tries to bring to an end a long running trilogy or a long-running series rather of uh of media right and ultimate nine was operating under many of the same burdens and suffered many of the same pitfalls there was no way that the story of ultimate nine was ever going to be satisfactory to everybody there's no way that it was going to resolve every loose end tie up everything nice and clean and just close the series out on the highest possible of high notes not that we didn't all hope and expect that it would But of course, that was an unfair expectation on our part, and I think we need to admit that to ourselves. That said, Ultima 9 did incorporate many of the themes that Richard Garriott did ultimately want to incorporate into it. We still got that Avatar-Guardian duality. We still got that overarching message that... Britannia needs to stop looking to the Avatar as the only means of solving its problems. That Britannia needs to actually be able to get its own shit together and solve its own problems. You know, we still got that uh, that finality of the Avatar ultimately sacrificing himself to defeat the Guardian. Because what else can you do? The Guardian is you. Now, I think in one iteration of the plot, you know, there was um, like the Avatar would have been, I think this might have been Ed's iteration of the plot. The Avatar actually would have survived and returned home to Earth, um, essentially just a normal human being again, which would have been cool too, right? That said, obviously, you know, the, the, the idea of the Avatar and Guardian like merging and kind of mutually annihilating, but then kind of coming back as this sort of powerful spirit being for Ultima 10, eh, that was good too. Not really dissatisfied with that at all. But like I say, a lot of those core themes um, that Richard Garriott had wanted in Ultima 9 from the get go ended up in the final game. And that was great to see. And the rest of the story was good too. You know, it was great to be able to see the shrines have an impact in Britannia again. It was. Great to be able to explore Britannia again. It was great to be able to see Britannia's sky finally. Oh my gosh, maybe it's just the scout in me, but that is always something I wished I could do. And finally in Ultima 9, I could. I could see the two moons, I could see sunrises and sunsets in this world that for me had kind of become like my Narnia by this point in my life. I do take the point about Ultima Online's dialogue that is a little bit wooden, it's a little bit stilted, it has, you know, some issues. And the more we've come to learn about the game's development process, the more this makes sense. When it came down to brass tacks, when it came down to actually that crunch to get the game out, oftentimes designers were writing scenes, writing dialogue, and sending that directly or almost directly to the voice team. There was very little iteration, there was very little of an editing process that actually was able to occur for the dialogue in a lot of scenes. So I do, you know, take the criticism, and I do acknowledge it, that Yeah, Ultimate 9 doesn't have, you know, the best voice work out there, especially compared to, you know, the modern era of video games, right? Any Bioware title could come to mind here. But equally, I categorically reject the what's-a-paladin criticism because I don't actually begrudge the fact that that dialogue is in the game. You know, it actually makes sense that dialogue is in the game that enables the avatar to ask about common things in Britannia. And if you look at every other Ultima game, or at least from mm, Ultima 6 onward for sure, right? Because Ultima 6, of course, has keywords highlighted in dialogue. And you can ask about those keywords. And you can ask about things like the virtues or like different places in Britannia or what the shrines are or all of those kinds of things every game, really, that every game in any particular series that has a long-running story, you know, at least, you know, maybe not in the first game, obviously, because the first game is while well, you're introduced to the world, actually even in the first game because you're being introduced to the world, right? But if you have a long-running series of games, it does make sense for there to be dialogue options in later entries in the series that allow new players to become familiar with what has gone on in the series before, especially if they haven't actually stepped into the prior games in the series. So, you know, maybe, yeah, what's a paladin could have been a little bit better phrased, but the fact that it's there in the game, I don't begrudge that at all because Ultima 9 was built as much to bring in new players as it was to, you know, uh, be played by people who had significant experience with Ultima. Any game has to have that mentality. You can't just build a game for the same audience every time because that ensures that you're going to shrink your audience until the point that you're no longer viable as a property. So if there were concessions for new players to allow them to step into the lore of Britannia present in Ultima 9, that's totally fine. It's not at all a thing worth criticizing that those things happen to be in the game. So, again acknowledging that the game did have bugs and acknowledging that there are criticisms of the game that do have some legitimacy to them. I want to urge you hearing this to just give Ultima nine a try or another try, but do it in that, you know, I have this problem trying to watch star Wars episode four with my children. They are obviously used to, you know, very sophisticated visuals In the TV that they watch. Well, you know, even a lot of children's cartoons have very sophisticated computer generated visuals to them. And Star Wars Episode 4 is, you know, a movie from significantly before their time. The pacing is different than what they're used to, the visuals are different than what they're used to, and they do find it a little bit boring, to my great shame. But it's impossible for them to put themselves in the context of moviegoers of that day and age. I mean, they weren't alive. But part of, the, part of the power of that first Star Wars movie was the fact that nobody had seen anything like that. And for the next few years afterwards, nobody was really doing anything like it. You know, there were sci-fi movies that came after Star Wars that looked terrible. Or not terrible, terrible, but you know, not as good as Star Wars did. Star Wars was really the only game in town for that amazing high-quality sci-fi experience for pretty much the entire run of the first trilogy. You know, even the Star Trek movies really didn't compete again initially you know but unless you understand like what science fiction movies in the mid 70s and late 70s and even early 80s looked like compared to what star wars presented in terms of that visual thrill you don't have any way of you know understanding why audiences flocked to star wars in the way that they did and Unfortunately, Ultima 9 was not anywhere near as successful as it deserved to be. Unfortunately, it was not anywhere near as successful as Star Wars was. But there's an element of that there, too. You know, so my challenge to you is to try and put yourself back into 1999. And maybe you should start by studying some of the other 3D RPGs, and there were very, very few of them at the time, right? But, you know, look, go from like 1998 to 2002 and look at some of the 3D RPGs that were produced during that time, especially if you're able to find many good examples, ones that were predominantly uh, featuring a third person view. Play them if you can, study them if not, and then try Ultima 9. You can pick it up on GOG, it's pretty cheap. It's a paradigm shift, and unfortunately, it never caught on, you know? Some of the 3D RPGs that followed it, even Everwinter Nights and Dungeon Siege, very different games, not bad games, and you could do a lot with their engines, obviously we got Ultima V Lazarus out of Dungeon Siege and I loved playing with the Neverwinter Nights toolkit, but definitely couldn't realize the same sort of total experience of a world that you got with Ultima Nine, And it was unprecedented to see that sort of thing in 1999 and in some ways it still is there's very few games today that offer that sort of immersive experience in a 3d game world so my challenge to you is give Ultima 9 another try but try it from that context and try and understand the sheer technical marvel that it actually was and try and drink in a little bit of that wonder as you play through the game If you want to join the Ultima Dragons, you can do so at UDIC.org, whereat you can choose your very own dragon name. You can also find the Ultima Dragons on Facebook. We have a Facebook group there. And you can follow at Ultima Dragons on Twitter or join them on Discord. And if you're feeling really old school, you can even fire up a Telnet client and check out the Wearmount. Hit up the show notes for links to all of these. If you want to participate more directly in the podcast, you can send us an email. Or if you're feeling a little bit braver, leave us a voice message in one of three places, the podcast website, our Facebook page, or on anchor.fm. And you're also welcome to join us on our Discord server to chat with us, to lurk, or even contribute to podcast recordings when they happen. And again, links in the show notes. If you'd like to support Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug, you can do so at patreon.com slash Ultima Codex, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to episodes the day before they go live to the general public. You'll also get access to behind the scenes audio when we have some to share and possibly other interesting content. But we also welcome your moral support. You can like the Ultima series on Facebook, follow at Ultima Codex on Twitter, or leave the podcast a review on iTunes. And you're also welcome to share our episodes with your friends and social media circles. Spam, Spam, Spam Humbug is a production of the Ultima Codex. You can find show notes online at spam, 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 humbug.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be virtuous.